Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with Alice Seng. She is Director of Data Science at Datto, formerly known as GraphLab. And she also happens to be one of the most popular speakers at Strata plus Hadoop World. Welcome to the Data Show, Alice. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So first off, I think uh, many people in the Strata world and maybe O'Reilly Radar already know a little bit about your work, but let's talk a little bit about your background. Um, were you one of these uh, early computer programmers, like even as a kid? Uh, actually, I wasn't. I was just talking to some of my colleagues at Datto yesterday, and one of them said, oh, I learned programming when I was seven. And I said, oh, I definitely did not learn programming when I was seven. Um, I think of myself as a relative latecomer to computer science and programming. I ventured into programming when I was in high school, but I really didn't start to learn programming until, I, until my first year in college. So were you a CS major? Yeah, I was. I double majored in computer science and math. Right, because you're definitely more in the uh, mathematical side of computer science, right? Well, my grad school topic is, I think of it as a um, pretty good combination between um, statistics, math, and computer science. And Probably for, and heavier. For, and for our audience out there, Alice studied with the Michael Jordan of machine learning. <laughs> Yes, my advisor was Mike Jordan, and I back then, or maybe even today, we always have to say, no, he does not play basketball. Although I heard that he plays basketball, there's a basketball game among CS people in Berkeley and that he plays. I'm not sure if that's oh, true. Because really? someone told I didn't was know bragging, was bragging to me that they were guarding Michael Jordan. <laughs> in basketball. <laughs> that's, it turned out to be That's him. funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I anyway. know that Mike was on... Anyway, Mike, Mike, I know that Mike is on a rock band. I did not know that he actually plays basketball. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so you uh, studied under Mike, and he's basic. He's kind of a statistician, mathematician, mm -hmm. uh, right? So mm -hmm. yeah. Um, obviously, has trained a lot of uh, famous faculty now in machine learning, including Andrew Ning and David Bly. So you were in grad mm -hmm. school with those people. I was, yeah. So. Uh, I don't know if you heard the interview I did with David, but basically he revealed that the LDA was sketched out in a napkin in a coffee shop in Berkeley. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, what was your thesis in Berkeley? I worked on using machine learning to debug software. Oh, interesting. So basically going into the code? Yeah, so I collaborated with Ben Liblet, who is now a professor at University of Wisconsin. Um, this was his thesis as well. His thesis actually won the ACM Thesis of the Year Award. Um, so we collaborated. He, he came up with this idea of instrumenting software programs to collect runtime data. And we had both interned at Microsoft Research the summer before and met each other there. And after we both returned to Berkeley, one day he just came by my office and said, hey, Alice, I have this data from all these programs and I, I, I'd like to use it to debug the programs. How might I do that? 
And I said, oh, let me tell you about this really simple machine learning algorithm called logistic regression. And so we just started from there. We basically applied logistic regression with L1 regularization, which is uh, lasso, to select what were the important predictors for the, la- the outcome label of whether the program failed or succeeded. And eventually that generated two PhD theses, probably more. I think Ben has students continuing on um, that path of research. So did you, so you never uh, went on the academic track, like you never considered becoming a faculty member somewhere? I did. Um, I, like growing up in Mike's group, most of the people had academia in mind post-graduation. And I definitely had that in mind too. But ultimately, I chose to go to an industry research lab, Microsoft Research. And I think that was really a great decision for me. Because I I worked on a variety of applications of machine learning, and I wasn't as concerned about inventing new machine learning algorithms as um, really understanding the problem and understanding the data and understanding the methods to see what's the best way of putting them together. Um, So now to think about it makes me more of an engineer, um, maybe, than a researcher. Maybe some people would agree with that classification. Um, so, so describe from, MSR when you were there. Was it uh, were you guys doing pure research, or were you tied yeah, to product groups? We're not tied to product groups. We were free to pursue whatever research we felt was would be the most impactful. Because um, you kept pub- were, you kept publishing when you were at MSR, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, publications so you, are important. So you still went to kind of the same conferences that you went to when you were a grad student? Yeah, I did. And so uh, since you're not tied to a product group, so it's, it's kind of a purely R&D environment, you can just pursue. So where do you get your problems then? Just um, I talk to people from product groups. I talk to colleagues. Um, one of the problems that I worked on at Microsoft Research was diagnosing why computer systems fail and we collaborated with the Windows um, instrumentation group and analyzed log data from uh, Windows machines to figure out why systems, why a program is hanging, why, is, why something is slow to respond. So that work ended up somewhere uh, being used by the Windows group in a product? I built a prototype of it. And so that was mostly an engineering effort on, on my part. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I don't know if people are still using it right now. So when did you start? Uh, so I always think of you as one of the best explainers of complex things, particularly to, uh, you know, the combination of non-technical, but even kind of just uh, uh, even a technical audience that may not be uh, that familiar with machine learning. So when did you start uh, developing those skills? The expo- well, thank you. The exposition and uh, and presentation skills to do that. Thanks. Um, well, I think certainly being certainly learning from Mike helped. I think Mike is one of the clearest. Yeah, he can, expo- uh, he expositionists. Can, he can make you think that you are really understanding something really complex when he's talking. <laughs> Exactly. He's such a great yeah. uh, speaker that way. Yeah. He yeah, he is. Yeah. I think when I I remember when I first started in machine learning um and he was teaching us 
I don't, I forget what it was, maybe junction trees or maybe just even just linear regression. He would just pull in all of these ideas from disparate fields like optimization and statistics and computer science and, you know, in one lecture, in one proof. And I, people, students would just sit there kind of jaws dropped and just like, wow, that's, that sounds so cool. And that's amazing. And afterwards, we'd go back and, and, and think, wait, what, what was it that he said? <laughs> Do I really understand what, what all the, all the deep um, theory that he explained? Um, so it takes time to digest, but in the moment, you just feel like, wow, I touched upon something amazing. You know, I, um, my experience now with, you know, having spent a lot of years hanging out with Amp Lab, going to their retreats, is that uh, the students, uh, even the first or second year students give great talks and uh, from what I understand, they're, they really go through rehearsals, the professors critique their presentation skills and stuff like that. So was that something you guys were doing back then too? Um, we would give, back then when I was in Mike's group, Amplat hadn't started yet. Um, we did not have yearly retreats, but we had weekly reading group meetings where each student uh, and faculty took turns, maybe it was just students, um, took turns leading the reading group and presenting material to the rest of the group. That was, um, that was quite a trial by fire experience. So now what I, I imagine once you were at MSR and as you described, you were, you, one of your examples you gave earlier was you worked with uh, the Windows group. So you probably started interacting with people who weren't machine learning experts, right? So you were forced mm -hmm. to really explain to them what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really, I find that it's really important to, um, for users of machine learning algorithm to understand what is happening. Um, it's not enough to just tell someone that, oh, this is done by boosted decision trees and that's the best classification algorithm. So just trust me, it works. Um, and, people, soft, and software makes it easy to do, right? So you, here's data, I plug it into an algorithm, here's the result. Yeah, but that's just that's just one iteration. Yeah, uh, in exactly. order to really, you know, as a as a builder of these applications, you need to understand what the algorithm is doing in order to make it better. And as a user who ultimately consume the results, it can be really frustrating to not understand how they were produced. So when we worked with analysts in Windows or in Bing, um, when we were analyzing computer computer system logs. And that's, that's very, um, very difficult to, for a human being to understand. So we definitely had to work with the experts who understood the semantics of the logs in order to make progress. And they had to understand what the machine learning algorithms are doing in order to provide useful feedback. So it goes for both sides. And I just find this bridge um, or more like a chasm between the machine learning expert and the domain expert to be the most difficult one to bridge um, in this field. So I think, you know, to do my part, I really want to make these algorithms understandable to people who are not machine learning experts. So at some point you decided to move on to GraphLab, now known as Datto. Um, mm -hmm. So what precipitated that move? Um, it really comes back to this um, this big divide 
this bottleneck between the domain expert and the machine learning expert. And I saw that as the most challenging problem facing us in when we try to really make machine learning widely applied in the world. So I saw both machine learning experts and domain experts as being difficult to scale up. There's only a few of um, each kind of expert produced every year. So I, I thought, how can I, how can I scale up machine learning expertise? And I thought, well, the best thing that I could do is to build software that takes, that doesn't take a machine learning expert to use so that the domain experts can use them to build their own application. So that's what um, started me to do research in automating machine learning while at MSR. And then ultimately I decided I want to actually build the tool. So I came to GraphLab and now Datto. Oh, so, so I guess you, you feel that at some point the machine learning tools are going to be simple enough that a business analyst or someone who routinely uses Excel can start using machine uh, learning himself or herself. Yeah, absolutely. I think simple to use enough and interpretable enough. Both are important. Right, right, right. So I think, you know, one of the things that uh, people who aren't machine learning experts fail to appreciate is that uh, while it is simple to apply these algorithms now, right, because there's all sorts of libraries and frameworks, uh, as you pointed out, it's interpreting the results and iterating. Uh, it's still somewhat would you say it's still somewhat of an art form? Yeah, definitely. Um, that exper on... experience still matters, right? So people with uh, experience doing these things a lot can be can yeah. be much more productive and be much more insightful at the end. I think experience definitely helps, and um, uh, for me, I. I think that an, an, a clear and intuitive understanding of what is happening also helps. So that kind of brings us to a level of transparency in the tools. So, for example, I, I think I think one of the hardest problems in machine learning, in applied machine learning, is feature engineering, and that's not that has very little to do with which classification or clustering algorithm you end up choosing or which model you end up applying. It has a lot more to do with dealing with raw data and processing them into a form that is amenable to the whatever model it is that you choose. And so it's a it's an iterative process in that you might start from raw data. It's still somewhat domain specific, right? So depending on your source data, you yeah, might, you might have yeah. different tools and techniques for extracting features. Right. So let's go back to log data, for example, which I think log data is actually really, really difficult for machines to handle because it's there's structure in it, but it's kind of a different form of it's all spit out by spit out by machines and programs. So there's structure, but it, that structure is difficult to understand for humans. And you can't just throw, there's lots and lots of it. So you can't just throw all of it into an algorithm and expect the algorithm to be able to make sense of it. You really have to um, process the features, do a lot of, of pre-processing and say, extract out first, you do things like extract out the um, frequent sequences maybe, um, or figure out what's the right way to represent IP addresses, for instance, or what's 
you know, maybe you don't want to represent latency by the actual latency number, which could have very um, a very skewed distribution with lots and lots of large numbers. Um, you might want to process them into bins of something. So there's just a lot of things that you need to do to get the data into a format that's friendly to the model. And then you want to choose the right model. And then maybe once after you choose the model, you realize, oh, but this model can, you know, really is suitable for numeric data and not categorical data. Um, then you need to go back to the feature engineering part and figure out what's uh, what's the best way to represent the data. I'm smiling. And I'm smiling because I'm thinking of all these projects I've worked on where um, that feature engineering piece might be, uh, let's say, 80% of the code. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And then, mm -hmm. and then the actual application of the algorithm is just such a small part of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, know? yeah, definitely. This is something that I think all practitioners of machine learning, all data scientists, would appreciate. Yeah, and then, but also there's another piece to it, right? Which is the subject of something you've just written for us, a, a short report, uh, and that's evaluating the results of these uh, models, right? So. Um, right. It turns out that, you know, uh, I just happened to read your report. It, it turns out there's a lot of these uh, different ways you can look at models. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, so this this whole pipeline of starting from raw data, doing feature engineering, picking the model, evaluating the model and then going back to the beginning. Um, it's all of it is an iterative process. And I wrote this report focusing on just the evaluation part, which is already um pretty hairy. Um, full of acronyms, full of acronyms. Full of, like <laughs> everything else in this field, full of acronyms. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to make it kind of going back to the spirit of interpretability and explainability and transparency. Um, I just wanted to explain some of these acronyms and jargon so that people can understand better how to, how to apply them. So let me ask you this, Alice. So you have these acronyms, right? So for evaluating models. Uh, so do you think at some point a business analyst you can you can have business analysts evaluate models without actually even exposing these acronyms? Just here's a few charts. You can tell whether or not this is the right model. You just train them to interpret yes. a few charts, right? So. I I think so. Yeah, I think it's possible. It's just not been it done. I haven't seen it yet. Because I think the not typical the typical yet. tool is either uh, aimed at data scientists who code who might already know how to evaluate models, but they may not. And then the business analysts who just basically apply the models. And I'm not sure actually how they actually give them tools to evaluate the effectiveness of the model, other than just some simple metrics, right? So. Right. I, as you're as you're speaking, I'm thinking of the output that 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 one would see from R running linear regression, for instance, which is something that that I I even have trouble interpreting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, there's, yeah, yeah. there's just a lot of detail that's very helpful for um, someone doing research in maybe building new models, building new algorithms, but they can be they're not very human friendly, I think. But you, and you make the distinction, though, that uh, maybe maybe this is where the the business users come in, right? So you make the distinction between um, kind of this machine learning, quantitative metrics, and as opposed to the business metrics. 
that business people can yeah. ultimately, right? So. Yeah, definitely. I think so. Like I, so going back to this pipeline, um, if we think of training the model as just a part of it, then even after you've um, trained the model and evaluated and found it to be um, good by some evaluation metric standards, then you deploy it where it actually goes and faces users. Then there's a different set of metrics that the that that would impact the users. Like, um, well, you can measure. You might measure. Well, how long? How long does do users actually interact with this model? Um, does it actually make a difference in the length of time? Do they used to interact less and now they're more engaged, or vice versa? And that's something that was. That's different from whatever evaluation metric that you use, like um, AUC or per class accuracy or precision recall. So how, and those how, how does a data scientist uh, communicate with the business managers if they're speaking a completely different language? Then, right? So. Um, I think this is part of the challenge of the data scientist's job today is making this translation from what the model says and what the... Um, what the business metrics say. Right, so, so uh, data scientists still need to embed themselves uh, with the line of business people, right? So at the end of the day, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, they can't just work in isolation and kind of uh, throw over models that look good using these machine learning metrics, but really don't perform well for the business. Yeah, so one, for, for example, it's probably not enough to just say, this model has a 0.85 F1 score and expect someone who's not done any data science to understand what that means. Does that actually mean that, um, that the results, how, how good are the results? What does it actually mean to the end users of the product? So what was the genesis of this report? What led you to start working on, on a series of posts that talks about how we should be evaluating machine learning models. Well, part of the part of the impetus for for me starting to write it was I just wanted to clear up. There seems to be a confusion between um, technical terms. Like um, people would ask us to implement cross validation, and we would say, "Well, we have holdout." Validation, you can just, you know, do a train test split and you can do that. Is that enough? And then it turns out that they actually mean that they want to do hyperparameter tuning or model selection. And we say, oh, we actually already have that. It's just not called cross-validation because that's really not, cross-validation is part of parameter tuning, but it's not the same. Con they don't sit at the same concept hierarchy. So I just wanted to explain that. But once I started to do that, I realized, well, there's a lot more to it because I need to then explain what are the different concepts in this area of evaluating machine learning and what is model selection, where does validation play a role, um, and what do you validate it on? So then we have to talk about metrics and data sets. So do, uh, where do you think uh, we are in terms of uh, uh, training data scientists? So you came of age when and I came of age when there was no such thing as data science, <laughs> or there was, no. there was, but it wasn't called uh, uh, data science, right? So, have you been keeping, yeah. keeping track of all these different programs now? Uh, now, even universities are starting to embrace the term, and they're offering courses and degrees in some cases. And uh, actually, I have a funny story. I 
I was in a conference with a bunch of academics and uh, we were talking about data science in mm -hmm. academia and courses and stuff. And they said, basically, they, everyone said, all we have to do is put the term data science in the course and it's automatically full. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, uh, I worry a little bit for the older disciplines like statistics who are going to get um, somewhat marginalized by this, uh, the popularity of data science, right? So uh, all the undergrads yeah. rushing to data science courses. Huh. Um, well, I think, I think in order to be an effective data scientist, um, you have to know how to use a bunch of tools. I have to be able to interact with uh, or you know know how to pull out data from whatever source they're sitting in hive or or dealing with streaming databases. Uh, you know dealing with data and dealing with models and dealing with the consumers, um, be they business decision makers or analysts or end users. So it's um it's a bridge discipline. And I think in order to be, an effective data scientist. Um, so there will be your so you're predicting there will be data science departments and universities. I I don't know I don't know if I would predict that. Um, right now there's right right now I don't think there are there they're just kind of uh, universities are starting to explore some have masters some have mm -hmm. certificates I think bachelor's degrees are going to mm -hmm. come sooner than mm -hmm. we think and mm -hmm. it might just sit somewhere. In, mm -hmm. you know, populated by people from different departments, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe having a department, um, definitely a specialization is is a good idea because it does it is pretty interdisciplinary by nature. Um, so definitely programming should be part of it and statistics should be part of it and industry experience. So partnering with companies yeah, with data. Yeah, and the data management, as you pointed out. But, you know, I mean, I think nowadays, I think you need a little bit of DevOps too, right? So you need to know a little bit mm -hmm. how to use Amazon, uh, mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure any single department actually bridges all of those, but I think the CS department definitely has much more of, uh, many more of those courses than any of the other departments. That's probably true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So trends in machine learning and data science, anything out there that uh, have piqued your interest besides deep learning? <laughs> By the way, uh, for the listeners out there, actually, I consider if you want to use deep learning right away, I think probably the quickest way to do that is uh, Dado. I mean, you can do everything. I mean, I think you can do deep learning and Dado using Python. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Deep so that's Dado. the fastest entry point if you want to play around with uh, deep learning. I think at this point would be Dado, and it's pretty fast as well. So yeah, so. and we also include provide a way to deploy the models, so that helps with some of the DevOps um, problems that you just mentioned. But um, trends in machine learning, I think, going back to interpretability, building models that are interpretable is sure. important. So deep learning is out. Well, no, I think it's possible to. No, I think it is possible to interpret deep learning. It it's it it takes a little. Maybe it takes a little more effort. Um, deep, I think of deep learning as a feature learning method. Yeah. yeah primarily. Yeah. Basically, you get better and better feature representations, right? Right. Exactly. So 
So back to that sticky problem of feature engineering, um, I think where deep learning really shines is learning the or lear- learning helpful representations of data, doing automatic feature engineering. So how about this? That's another trend. One of the things you mentioned, which is uh, I think people are beginning to appreciate the importance of model deployment and maintenance. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Dado in particular, you guys definitely are starting to talk about that. And you even have tools out there for uh, testing different models, right? Don't you have bandits now? We don't have bandits yet. We are, um, uh, I think it's safe to say that we are working on it and um, and people can expect something down the road. Um, yeah, managing machine learning models in production is, is another hot topic recently. It's definitely something that um, currently takes a team of experts to do and it's still, it's very challenging even then. Um, I think better tools can help with that a lot. So what? So notebooks, super popular, right? So uh, Dado uses notebooks, so do a lot of people. Even uh, the Spark guys and Databricks are starting to use notebooks. So I mm-hmm. like them, but I think in many ways, uh, for those really complex pipelines, I'm not sure. Maybe it becomes harder and harder to manage inside a notebook, right? So notebooks seem to be inherently linear. So if you have these pipelines that branch off, mm-hmm. so what's your take on notebooks? I like you. I really like notebooks. I am a convert at first. Um, at maybe two years ago, I remember talking to Joey Gonzalez, and he was like, "Yeah, notebooks are great." And I and I just thought, "No, it's you know, I prefer I prefer good old fashioned command line." But now I'm eating my words. I I, I like notebooks to be able to see um, visually the commands and the output. But I also agree with you that it's not. It doesn't solve all the problems. So when you have this iterative process, or when you have different branches of d- different trails of the of your model prototyping or production pipeline, it falls short in displaying that information. Um, it's almost you kind of we're almost getting into the territory of visualizing machine learning pipelines, which um, tools like Azure ML is doing. Yeah, yep. um, but I'm also um, I'm also suspicious of visual programming. I think I don't know. It seems very clunky. Um, I, for me as a programmer, I want fast and nimble control over exactly what goes into each box. It's it's helpful. It's definitely helpful to be able to vis- visualize the overall system architecture. But when there's too many components, um, that that visualization itself becomes oh, difficult yeah. to manage. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, and, I and saying, when yeah. I want, yeah, when I want fine grained control of you know of each component within that component, I still want to get back to the code somehow. Yeah, so uh, I, mean, I think I think it would work. I mean, so I think uh, what's going to happen, and I think it's already happening. I think uh, the Spark guys are already doing this in many ways. Is that uh, You'll have notebooks as the boxes in this pipeline, right? So, mm-hmm. so you you have the workflow tool, which is directed acyclic graph, but each mm-hmm. each box might be a notebook that you can find mm-hmm. and control. Because uh, mm-hmm. as as you pointed out, I've seen kind of this visual programming tools that uh, have everything, right? So they have data preparation, they have uh, machine learning models, they have charting, and all glued mm-hmm. together by this. Uh, 
visual programming interface, but then it becomes confusing because every box means something different. Yeah. And this is not even this is not the whole story. It's not just about the model, um, just one model, or it's not even about a static three models or five models. Last year at the one of the NIPS workshops, um, uh, there was a Google one of the Google groups pre presented this paper called the high interest credit card of machine learning. Um, and that's, a, that's about managing machine, managing systems with machine learning components and how difficult that is. One of the things that they, that I took away from that talk that really stood out is being able to manage data sources and machine learning outputs and keeping track of them over time because the output of a model might be the input to something, some other piece of the component and um, changing one would affect the other. So you you want to be able to track not just the provenance, like where did this model come from, but you also want to be able to track where did this data come from and how did this little chunk of output or input evolve uh, and get piped through different parts of the system over time. So it's like model, data, and time. Model, data, and metadata. Model, data, metadata, and over time, how, how, does, how does this whole system work? Right, right. And uh, so it, it, in terms of trends, uh, neither of us are really talking about algorithms, right? So I think people, people on the outside, seem, uh, people not in data science think that data scientists are obsessed with algorithms when in fact uh, we're not. <laughs> um, it's this little other, it's these other <laughs> annoying things that obsess us, right? So. Yeah, I... Uh, I, I hesitate to say anything critical because um, I, you know, like half of my friends are in machine learning, which is all about algorithms. Um, but I, I don't think that algorithms, I think we already have enough algorithms. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's not that we don't need more and better algorithms, but I think a much, much bigger challenge is data itself and feature features yeah. feature engineering features and managing yeah. these features and managing, and managing them these pipelines right these pipelines right yeah 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 so for yeah, example Leon? for example the amp lab guys with ben rect uh, have, have this project called keystone ml and it's all about mm -hmm. pipeline not really algorithms mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. yeah pipelines um yep definitely a good good way to manage systems and leon botu uh, just last month gave a talk at, oh, given yeah. him a talk at ICML, ICML yeah, yeah. Um, or one of, one of his points was instead of deploying machine learning models, deploy machine learned features. I'm paraphrasing, at least that's, you know, that's how I translated what he said into my language. So I think this idea of, um, you know, for instance, using deep learning to extract features, which is something that Datto's um, product provides, or using, I don't know, there's tons of other kinds of automatic feature extractors, like using the output, using the output of classifiers as features into the next algorithm. That's, a, that's another, another thing that people have um, explored. So things like that. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're are, right. So if, if yeah. anything, we need al better algorithms for extracting features. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I don't know if you're familiar with the Chris Ray's work, that deep dive project, in many ways, that reminds me of what you're talking about. So they're taking, they're, they're, it's like a knowledge extractor for text, images, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and other d data sources. But basically, at the end of the day, when you uh, listen to him talk, uh, 
uh, it's all mm -hmm. about really he's concerned about features. Mm -hmm. So he's mm -hmm. developing tools to extract features. I think features are easier to manage uh, and deploy and and to some degree easier to understand. Maybe it could be easier to understand than models themselves. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and there's no, again, uh, even with uh, features themselves, uh, there's no mm -hmm. silver bullet, right? So different data sources, you'll need different techniques. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so getting back to what does, what does a data scientist need to do? I think understanding, having an understanding of what the features mean or like automatically learned features and having an understanding of what is happening with the models help to um, help to make the product better. So you recently went back to engineering at Dado, but uh, mm -hmm. are you still gonna be uh, doing writing and teaching? Or are you mostly in engineering these days? Um, I, I'm taking an engineering vacation. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really happy to be working on code again. Um, it's, it's exciting. I love writing, so I don't think I'll stop writing. And part of my what really drives me is both um, obtaining insights about how things work and communicating them to other people. And in that process, not only do I like impart this knowledge, but it also helps to deepen my own understanding of how things work. So I, um, I, I love writing and I don't think I will stop doing that. It's just that now I really feel like, okay, I need to, I need to do more coding. I need to do more experiments. I need to play around with um, data more so that I actually have more things to write about. So let me ask you this. So people ask me this all the time because I, I, I come from a math background, but uh, these days, because we have all these computers doing all this crunching and computing computation for us, uh, how much math do we really need to know, right? So in other words, uh, you pointed out earlier, right? So uh, if you're gonna be a data scientist, you should know statistics, but can you be a can you be a productive industrial data scientist without knowing that much about math or stat? Uh, I would say no, but I think, I think well, the thing well, is well, math... Alice, what about if the tools get better and even the stuff that you just wrote about, which is evaluating machine learning models, suppose tools get better mm -hmm. and then the results become easier to interpret. So it's tool builders, well, if, tool builders if tool builders like mm -hmm. you develop mm -hmm. better tools that will allow a non-expert to evaluate mm -hmm. machine learning models. Well, we already mm -hmm. have tools that that uh, do the machine learning. Now we just need better tools for helping me evaluate whether or not I'm doing the right thing. Well, <laughs> great question. I think uh, I, 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 you, you, that's a that's a great question, and and I think that's part of the the flaw in my argument here <laughs> is I, I have been talking about two different things. Of well, you know, I want to make better tools so that people don't that don't require too much expertise to use. But on the other hand, I'm also advocating for people, um, just the general public learning more math and statistics and computer science. And I, I don't know how to reconcile both of those are true. Those, both of those are definitely true for me. I do want to make tools that are easier to use. So the macro trend is cognitive augmentation, the tools just uh, the 
software will augment your brain and make it easier for you to one do the computation but also interpret the results right so right i think that the the crux the reason why i think you still need to learn about math and statistics at least understand the basic concepts and have a good intuition for them is so that you will be able to interpret the the outcome and well maybe interpretation Maybe interpretation won't be so hard if we build good tools. Yeah, that that's help what I'm thinking. But, that's you, what I'm... but you still need to, I think, for I think for people who are wanting to make changes in the product, you know, like make a better, make a like make a better recommender or make a better search engine or make not okay, not everybody makes search engines, but if you want to or, make improvements, or, or think, for or for that reason, recommender. So I'll just use Dado. Sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. but I think having you know, at least basic concepts like um, how what's what do probabilities mean? I think understanding that is still going to be key to be able to make advances. You know, like interpret, see the results, and understand how what to change to make them better. Right, right, right. But I I wonder that you know, in a large company, let's say Microsoft, how many such people do you need? Maybe you don't need that many of those type of people. You need a handful, and then the rest uh, are just great at using the improved tools and great at interacting with business people and communicating results, right? Um, maybe. I or or the existing people now with better tools can go on to build more machine learning enabled products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to increase your market size, Alice, instead of just thank the, you. Instead of just <laughs> instead of just the propeller heads inside the companies, you know. Yeah. So your market is yeah. really everyone, right? So Yeah. Well I, I also another thing is that I I don't think it's satisfying to just consume consume output from some automated program. I think people oh, no, people it, like it, understanding it, what goes on behind them. It depends on uh, it depends on your goal, right? So let's say I'm a business person and my goal is I don't know to increase revenue or to increase engagement. Yeah. And if I'm able to do that, um, I guess the question is, do I need? Uh, you know, if the tool is also telling me along the way, okay, you're increasing your business metric, and these are mm -hmm. the key drivers. Right. Is that enough? Isn't that enough? Or do I need to know that uh, it was because uh, there was this uh, hierarchical model that drove it? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So maybe, maybe it's. Um, so I guess okay. I, I guess that's the other thing here is that the uh, business people obviously they want to imp uh, impact their business. Uh, metric, but also want to know the key drivers, right? So, so the mm -hmm. machine machine learning tools need to do a better job at telling them uh, what's driving success. For sure, yeah. Yeah, not not just not just kind of the geeky metrics that the, the tools normally spit out. Yeah, yeah, explaining the model and explaining the output. Um, yeah, yeah, your yeah. your uh, business metric went up because we because of the following reason. Mm, or maybe at, at least what's correlated with yeah, what. what's correlated. I, I don't yeah, know yeah, if yeah. causation yeah, yeah. is easy I know. to yeah, establish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I knew you so, were gonna you know, get. Things... I knew you were gonna get technical on me. <laughs> well, things like that, like what's the difference between two things being correlated and one thing causing another? That's something that I think more people should understand better for us as a society to make better decisions. 
So in closing, I, you know, I wanted to tell the listeners out there that Alice will be leading a team of instructors for a whole day of, uh, I think, basically uh, large-scale machine learning mm-hmm. uh, at Strata New York. And so hopefully uh, we'll still see you at, at Strata and other events. And don't get, yeah, definitely. Don't, don't get lost in engineering. Oh, no, I won't. And yep, we, we will be at Strata New York teaching people how to build machine learning applications for reels. Using notebooks. Using notebooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, actually, well, as you were talking about notebooks earlier, actually, uh, and, and then we can wrap up. Uh, one of the things that I got reminded of is, you know, notebooks came out of teaching, right? So the Mathematica notebook. So in many ways, they're, oh, really, really? they're really optimized for instructional purposes. And maybe uh, maybe if we morph them too much and push them in a direction that uh, they weren't really designed to do, maybe uh, mm-hmm. maybe that's where uh, they start falling short. You know, like mani- maybe, yeah. managing yeah. these complex pipelines, that wasn't really part of the design <laughs> notebooks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, possible. I didn't know that notebooks came out of teaching, but that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, uh, so. I don't know if you used Mathematica, but they were they had notebooks way back. Oh, okay. I, I did not use Mathematica, and I did not know that. Yeah, so you were more a MATLAB person, huh? I was, yeah, much more of a MATLAB person. Yeah. All right, so this has been great. Thank you, Alice Seng. You can follow Alice Seng on Twitter, at Rainy Data. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show... You can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.